Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Eric Gonzalez and Michael Stir. Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We are getting into the thick of it. We're almost to the halfway point of the season. We'll talk about some teams that continue to be plagued by the injury bug. Talk about the MVP race. And then we'll talk about some teams that are both heating up and cooling off. But to start... Let's go over the weekly recap and talk first about Embiid and Jason Tatum of the 76ers and Celtics, respectively. Both players get 50 points. Who do you feel had the better game here? Um, I mean, both of these guys were obviously very impressive in these games. Um, let's talk about Jason Tatum's game first, I guess, since it was more recent. Um, just from an efficiency standpoint, Jason Tatum dropped 51 points, was plus 31 on the game. And he also chipped in with 10 rebounds, seven assists, six of six from the free throw. And he was also nine of 14 from three-point range and 18 of 28 overall from the field. So that kind of production is obviously out of control. But on the other hand, Joel Embiid did score 50 points in only 27 minutes. So the way that he was able to score the type of domination in that short a time, putting away the game that fast and only 27 minutes. Um, that's actually pretty historic. The only other person who has had a faster 50 point game since 1954 has been Clay Thompson, who was able to do it in 2018 in 26 minutes when he had that insane quarter where he was able to set the NBA scoring record for most points scored in a single quarter. So in my opinion, I think that probably Joel Embiid's is a little bit more impressive just for that regard. There's, um, you know, I guess a little bit more of a flex to be able to say that you were able to do it in only 27 minutes and put the, way, put the game away like that. Whereas the Boston Celtics, um, Jason Tatum played 33 minutes and it was against the lowly Wizards who are a losing team today after starting out pretty hot. And I think that also um, overall, I just give probably a little bit more credit to Embiid because he's, he's been doing it consistently. This 50-point game has come during a very dominant stretch overall, whereas Jason Tatum's kind of been up and down. So um, I think that Joel Embiid's game is probably just a little bit more impressive. Yeah, I think he did more with less in terms of minutes, but the Celtics against that the Wizards team, I mean, they won every single quarter. They won the first quarter by six points, then nine points, then seven points, then seven points. So they were consistently in the lead the entire game. I'm sure that Jason would have had a lower point total overall had he not played the fourth quarter. But, I mean, they they were dominating the entire game and did not let up off the gas. So I think that uh, his efficiency during the game and being able to get the double-double, have be three, three assists away from a triple-double, um, it just – speaks to the kind of season that he's starting to have and he's getting better here as we inch towards the all-star break. And I think he'll be one of those people that you have a lot of players that start a little slow or at least slower than people expected. Then the all-star break hits and then they get this reinvigoration after the all-star break. I peg him as somebody who will have that. Uh, and additionally, what's crazy to think about is if you think about that 2017 draft class, 
the 76ers could have paired Embiid with Jason Tatum, which would have been nasty overall of a combination, but they instead chose Markel Fultz. We all know how that turned out. And if you look at that 2017 class, the three top players of that class are Tatum, Mitchell, and Bam Adebayo. So I think that the 76ers definitely missed out because Bam and Donovan were taken uh, later in the draft, I believe in uh, 13 and 14 overall. So 76ers swung and missed on Fultz and definitely on Tatum, but those two players could have been uh, putting up 100 spots on teams night in and night out. Yeah, definitely. It's really sad to see the way it played out for Donovan Mitchell. Um, I mean, uh, sorry, Markel Fultz, a guy that had a lot of promise coming out of college. A lot of people expected big things from him, but um, I mean, unfortunately, he just hasn't been able to put it together or stay healthy. So definitely um, big miss for the Celtics. I can't even imagine what that pairing would have been like to have someone like Joel Embiid and Jason Tatum together. Would have been pretty incredible. Would have, but let's talk about some star point guards in the league. Somebody who we have not stopped talking about for the last four weeks, but Luca versus John Morant, both players showed out, uh, but which player do you think had a better game um, in, you know, overall? So, I mean, if I'm, if I'm just like taking away the outcome of the game, and I'm not looking at who won because obviously you want to give it to the winner. I would still say that Luka Doncic had the better overall game. Um, if I'm looking at the stats, John Morant, he did have 35 points. He had six assists. He had 13 rebounds. And he was somewhat efficient from the field. 14 of 31 overall, not bad. But for me, I think the major factor was that he had seven turnovers. He had more turnovers than he had assists. So when you're a point guard, you just can't have that. Luka Doncic, on the other hand, he didn't have like the cleanest game handling the ball either. He had five turnovers himself, but he had nine assists to go with it. He was plus 15 overall. He had three steals. He had 11 rebounds. He also was 13 of 25, so he shot above 50%. He was overall more efficient, and I think that he did a better job of getting everyone else involved. So... I think that Luka Doncic played the better game. I agree with you on Luka Doncic. And I think also if you look at Luka's game, he could have had a better night had he just stayed away from the three-point uh, shot. He was 13 of 25 from the field, but he was two of seven from three. So I think if he would have just probably passed the ball or, or driven a little bit more than overall his game would have been even that much better but John Morant playing a lot of minutes that game 41 minutes trying to get the uh, Grizzlies to beat the Mavs but couldn't do it then his plus minus was minus 11 versus Lucas plus 15 so I agree with you I have to give it to Dante Doncic. yeah I know and another thing to consider is um, I think that whenever we discuss Luka Doncic a lot of the time there's always a comparison with Trey Young too because obviously they're traded for one another drafted in the same draft class and they both turned out to be pretty good players both very young still have their entire career ahead of them pretty much but at this point I think it'd be interesting to compare Luka Doncic and John Morant which is a little bit different of a comparison I think that um, at this point it's pretty evenly split the field on who you think is the better player between Trey Young and John Morant obviously Trey Young um, at this point a little bit more seasons under his belt he's further along in his career his scoring average is a little bit higher. 
but John Morant obviously in less time is leading his team to a much more successful season. He's a better scorer by percentage. He's more efficient. And he obviously presents a different type of upside than Trey Young, who is largely considered to be undersized and a defensive liability. John Moran, on the other hand, is an exceptional athlete for the position, good size for the position, and potentially could be very disruptive on the defensive end when he locks in on that side. So if you're comparing Luka Doncic and John Morant between those two, which do you think will probably have the better career? I think right now I would give it to Luka because I think he has a more of a complete game, but they just play different styles of basketball. I think that while both are good facilitators and great at scoring, Ja is going to rely more on his athleticism. And we see that as point guards who rely on their athleticism age, they need to become more efficient shooters and better distributors overall. So we'll see how Jaws game continues to develop over the next couple of years. But I feel like Luca already has that. I think with the European style of play and more of that pass first mentality that he developed in Slovenia, I think that that's just going to continue to allow him to progress further uh, with the Mavericks from an earlier uh, starting point. So I'm going to give it to Luca for now, but we'll see how Ja continues to develop over the couple of years. Yeah, I think that for me, I think that John Morant probably has a higher ceiling than Luka Doncic, just because from the standpoint of evaluating Luka as a player, I do wonder, I mean, as, as great as he is, like how much better can he really be? He's not ever going to be someone that is going to project as an elite defender for his position. He's just not really, um, you know, very gifted physically. He doesn't really move extremely quickly laterally. He's not going to be a shutdown defender. We, we can pretty much say that confidently. And he mostly relies on taking advantage of his, his handle and using his size for mismatches to get into the paint. He's not blowing by anybody or using, um, you know, elite physical traits to dominate the opposition, which to your point would probably project as having more longevity in his career because you could probably play that style of basketball for longer since you don't need to rely on your athleticism. But at the same time, having that extra gear, that special ability to be physically superior to your opponent, the way that John Morant is, does present an extra degree, I think, that you can take it to if you can put it all together. So as of right now, um, I think most people would say that Luka Doncic is the better player than John Morant, which I'd probably agree with that. But that's, you know, also having to take into consideration that Luka Doncic has been around longer and John Morant still can add elements to his game that can severely impact how effective he will be. For example, just over the course of the few seasons that we've seen him, John Morant went from a guy who was considered to be a very streaky and inconsistent outside shooter to a guy that is pretty reliable. He started out his career shooting low 30s, um, only taking about 2.7 to 3-ish attempts per game. He's now shooting 35% from three on 4.4 attempts per game. If he can get that three-point percentage to continue to go up, which, I mean, again, he's only in his third season. It's not like it's implausible for him to continue to increase that three-point percentage. If he continues to become a, a threat from out there, it becomes that much more difficult to guard a guy with his type of athleticism. That's game-breaking type talent right there. And um, I think that he probably projects as having a higher ceiling 
than someone like Luka Doncic would. Yeah, well, only time will tell. But let's talk about Luka's team, the Mavs. They seem to be heating up after not starting off the season too hot. They've now won eight of their last 10, sitting fifth in the West, and appear to be on like on the rise and could have that post all-star break climb that gets them into a top four seed. So do you think that given their recent ascension and continued growth of the team that they're possibly more than a first round exit? Oh, um, I still don't think that this team is going to be able to make it out of the first round, to be honest with you, because even if this team does continue to play well, I don't see them ascending higher than the fourth seed. I think that's about as high as they'll go. I don't see them catching up with teams like the Jazz, the Suns, and the Warriors. I know the Warriors have been um, playing a bit poorly lately, and we'll get into that later, but I just don't see the Dallas Mavericks as a top three team, and I think the drop-off from the top three in the West to the Mavericks is pretty big. I don't think it's that close. So I think that there's a really good chance for the Mavericks that no matter what they do, they're going to have to wind up playing the Jazz, the Warriors, or the Suns in the first round. And unless they get the Jazz, who have a propensity to kind of fumble it in the playoffs, I really don't see them advancing past those teams. So, I mean, I think it's really impressive what they've been able to do. Again, 8-2 in their last 10, 27-20 and 20 now. And I think that was been most impressive is they've been doing it with exactly the same roster and really just doing it on defense, which is surprising because this team was considered a team that is not a good defensive team. And it's really been their defensive play that has made the difference for them as of late. But no matter what, as constructed, I just don't see this roster as having enough depth to be able to compete with the talent level of the top three teams in the West. I agree with you on that, and I think that they're going to have a hard time not being a first-round exit unless they face the Memphis Grizzlies to start. Or if they were able to get into that third spot and play a team like the Nuggets or if the Timberwolves climbed up there, I think that they have a shot. But I agree with you. I don't think they're beating the Suns, Warriors, and Jazz. And statistically speaking, they're likely going to face one of those three teams to start. And if they do, it's going to be a first-round exit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, too. I know we're saying, like, Suns, Warriors, Jazz, even though the Grizzlies are actually the team in third right now. I just feel like, I don't know, at some point I expect the Jazz to take hold of that third spot. I like the Grizzlies, but they've been playing at a level that, to me, was maybe not quite sustainable. Their point differential is only 3.2 compared to the Jazz's 7.1. So if we're looking at the top teams in the West, Suns are beating teams by an average of eight points. Warriors are beating teams by an average of seven and a half points. And then you have the Grizzlies after that major drop-off beating teams by an average of 3.2 points. I think that the Jazz, with their point differential, probably project as the team that but when it's all said and done will probably wind up in that top three. Well, the other thing with the, the Grizzlies you have to think about is Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, all out. So they still have a lot of their core pieces, their core young players out, and they're sitting in the third spot. So if they get those guys back, they could be rocking and rolling. 
Yeah, that's true too. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. It's a very young team. Young teams are, you know, they are prone to sometimes going through little cold streaks here and there, but they've been doing it all year. They've been proving everyone wrong. So I think that that's probably the most interesting um, finish to watch in the West is going to be who's going to get the third spot between the Grizzlies and the Jazz, the team that's trying to prove that they can actually be a contender in the playoffs or the team that is always the perennial regular season dominant team. They make it past the first round and then something happens where they just fumble the bag. Well, we'll have to see, but I want to shift our focus now to a couple teams that are cooling off or getting ice cold. And that's the Golden State Warriors and the Chicago Bulls. Both of these teams right now are missing what I would think are, is their heart and soul, Draymond for the Warriors and Caruso for the Bulls. Both of those guys don't put up the stats night in, night out, but they are the gas that gets everybody going. So right now, the Warriors also have Curry in his worst shooting slump of his career. They're four and four without Draymond. They're, I believe they're five and five in their last 10. The Bulls are out. They just dropped the one seed. They're three and seven in their last 10. Caruso's out for six to eight weeks. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But is there a cause for concern with these two teams? And if so, which one do you think has a bigger cause for concern? I think that definitely the Bulls have more cause for concern than the Warriors do. I definitely did expect the Warriors to run into some problems. If you remember in the last podcast, we were talking about which team was going to be more negatively impacted. And I, I thought that the Warriors would really miss Draymond Green because of all that he does for organizing their offense and their defense. It's not just, you know, what he does based on his stats contribution. It's how he makes everyone else play. This team does have a lot of young players, too, that are um, getting really significant roles with this team that have been overperforming. And I think that having a veteran who helps organize everyone really helps, especially when you have young guys playing key roles. And also when you get guys back that have been out for a really long time that you're trying to reintegrate. So Clay Thompson, clearly, since his return, has not been 100% back. He's been, you know, effective in some games uh, for stretches, but it's not the kind of production where he's playing at an all-star level. And he's currently right now experiencing some knee soreness. Apparently, they're going to rest in the game or two. So it's going to be a little tough without Draymond. But they are going to get Draymond back. And I do expect that Stephen Curry is not going to continue to play this terribly for this much longer. I mean, he is one of the greatest shooters. I mean, the greatest shooter of all time. So it is really bizarre to see why he's been struggling so much, even though you do expect it to be a little tougher with Draymond out. You don't expect it to fall off a cliff the way that it has. You know, this is a guy that is again, the league champion in three-pointers made all time. And for the month of January, he's shooting below 30% from three-point range. And he's also been averaging 10.6 attempts from three. Uh, during that stretch, he's had games where he's shot one of 10 from three. He followed that up with a game where he shot one of nine from three. He's had a two of nine from three, one of 13 from three, four of 13 from three. This is all in the same month. So, I mean, you do expect that at some point the law of averages is going to rebound. And even if he only marginally improves to go from, I don't know, 30% to 
that right there can be the difference in having a 500 team, which is what they are right now, to a team with a winning record. The Bulls, on the other hand, they can't seemingly beat anybody right now. They're three and seven in their last 10. And it's not just because of Caruso. It's because of all the injuries they've had. They also have Zach Levine out too. Their perimeter depth is severely depleted. Um, the paw, Patrick Williams, been out for the whole season too. He was probably considered to be one of their top two or three best perimeter defenders. And that absence is felt even more right now. You know, Derek Jones Jr., another guy. But this team has just been depleted in general. And I think that is just asking too much of DeMar DeRozan right now to pick up the pieces for everything that's missing. And you're also with Caruso, you're, you're missing one of the guys who leads, is one of the best stealers in the league. He's one of the top five guys in steals regularly this season. So the Bulls went from a team that was above average on both offense and defense to a team that is now below average on both. So, and I think that the Levine injury, obviously being a little bit more severe, he's going to be out a little bit longer. So it's going to be interesting to see how far they fall in the standings from being in first place to now third. Well, the good news is Levine's knee might be good enough that he could go tonight. But I mean, if you look at their six injured players, you mentioned a lot of them. I think you didn't mention Javante Green or Lonzo Ball. And of those six people, I mean, these are probably six of the top eight guys on their bench with Vooch and DeMar being the other two that fill in. So the Bulls, I think Caruso is just Caruso and Levine were probably the straws that broke the camel's back. But I think that you're missing a microwave with Zach Levine and the cookie monster and Alex Caruso. And I think that those two guys being out along with the other four, it just depletes them too much. And like you said, I don't think that Vooch and uh, DeMar can really weather all of that pressure, at least night in and night out, aren't going to be able to do it. Whereas the Warriors although they have Clay Thompson not playing uh, to his fullest abilities and Draymond, who has been out. They also have Andre Iguodala out. And I want to talk too about James Weissman, who's still been out. I feel that the Weissman experiment has one more year before everybody, and there's already talks about this, but everybody has a consensus that the Warriors messed up with not drafting LaMelo Ball instead of James Weissman. Because imagine LaMelo Ball distributing, being a passer on that team and bringing his energy night in and night out with a free-flowing offense that everybody gets to shoot and everybody gets their shot and he develops on the defensive end, learning from people like Draymond, like Andre Godala, like Clay Thompson. I think LaMelo's game would be even better than it is on Charlotte. And... I think that the Warriors would be better overall. I mean, it's interesting to say that it's everything is easier to say in retrospect. If you're the Warriors, you're you're obviously not, you know, banking on James Wiseman getting hurt and having to miss all this time. You're assuming that both of these guys are healthy and good to go. And in the times that we have seen James Wiseman play, the few occasions, he has looked like he definitely has some elite tools to work with. This guy, I know that he um, obviously has had a ton of injuries, but look at a guy like Joel Embiid, whose career kind of started similarly. Joel Embiid was a guy who everyone thought was going to be the second coming of Greg Oden. Every year, season-ending injury. Every year, he's out. And now look at him this year. This year, he's stringing together weeks where he's dropping 40 points multiple times in a week, 50 points in 27 minutes, et cetera. Um, and he finally realized his immense potential. 
James Wiseman is a guy that kind of has Joel Embiid-ish building blocks to work with. And from a fit standpoint, James Wiseman does make a lot more sense with the Warriors. And I think that his potential is just overall higher than LaMelo Ball's. It's just a shame that he hasn't been able to stay healthy. LaMelo Ball, on the other hand, is a guy who, while he is a great passer and a great point guard, he is the type of point guard that is kind of in the Chris Paul mold where he's dominating the ball. He's controlling the pace and holding the ball the whole time pretty much. And yes, he's spreading it out. It's not like he's shooting the ball a ton. But if you look at it, if you were to just clock it with a clock, the amount of time that the ball is in that point guard's hands, it's significant. The Warriors offense is predicated on hockey passes, second passes, lots of off the ball movement, passing between all five players, not just one guy setting the table for everyone. So, and I think that also adding a LaMelo ball would completely neutralize whatever Draymond Green could do for you because he's definitely not giving you much in the way of scoring. So I understand why the Warriors chose James Wiseman. It just looks like the wrong decision now because he hasn't been able to stay healthy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I disagree, though, on one point, because I think James Borrego has the offense flowing through LaMelo, which is why he probably is a little bit more ball dominant. I think that if he was on the Warriors, then Steve Kerr would scheme to not have it be such a high usage of LaMelo. Uh, there would be plays obviously designed for him, but I think that it would still be a very pass-heavy, free-flowing offense, regardless of who they inserted there. It could be. It'd just be interesting to see it that way, because if you're going to do that with LaMelo Ball, he has to be enough of an offensive threat off the ball to actually draw defenders towards him. And given his percentages, I know that we see highlights of him hitting threes every now and then, but he doesn't really have the best release. He's kind of an opportunistic shooter. He kind of relies on surprising the defense and taking a three-pointer when they're not expecting it, which you can do when you have the ball in your hands and you're taking it up all the time and you're popping around with the ball around screens all the time. But if he's asked to run and move off the ball, I don't know that he is the kind of guy with the type of finishing ability and shooting ability to play that style. So, I mean, it could work. I could be wrong. He is six foot eight. He is still going to probably put on a little bit more size over the course of his career, but I just don't see LaMelo Ball as being a fit for that type of offense. I think that no matter where he goes, it's like Chris Paul. Like You wouldn't imagine Chris Paul in that type of offense, even though he's a very capable shooter. Just because it's not really their playing style, I just expect him to always kind of be the type of guy where no matter where he goes, he's going to be the type of guy that's going to have the ball in his hands the majority of the time, spreading it out to everyone else. This is why I disagree with you on the LaMelo case with his shooting. Uh, Andrew Wiggins, when he was with the Timberwolves, his last three seasons with them averaged about a 33 to a 34% from three-point percentage and was putting up about, let's call it five to six attempts a game. In his three seasons with the Warriors, the first season he started off as in that same 34% three-point percentage. Last season, 38%. This season, 41%. So you've seen the growth of him from the three while shooting about the same amount of threes. He's making them at a higher clip. His field goal percentage as a whole also has gone up from his career average of 45. He's now up to 48%. And LaMelo Ball is at 36% right now. So he's starting at a 
higher point than where Andrew Wiggins would be in a younger point of his career. And then also I agree that his shot selection or the way that he shoots the ball is not natural, but think about Lonzo Lonzo in two to three years has completely transformed not only the way that he shoots, but the percentage at which he shoots. So if Lonzo could do it, and we all think that LaMelo has a higher ceiling and might be even a better player than Lonzo as a whole right now, then I think that the Warriors being able to unlock somebody like Andrew Wiggins would have or would be able to unlock LaMelo Ball. It would be interesting to see. I mean, I guess it's possible. Like you mentioned, there is, it's just too much speculation. It's, it's a lot of projection. He'd have to do a, a lot differently than what he's doing right now, but no denying he is a lot more talented than I initially gave him credit for. That's for sure. Yes, he is. But let's talk about the MVP race. So right now it's wide open. We started off the season talking about Durant and Curry, then Durant's missing time, Curry's slumping. We've had some big men coming into the fold now with Embiid showing out for the last probably 10 to 20 games. And obviously Nikola Jokic is just a machine. So what do you feel right now about the MVP race? Who do you think is in the lead? So for me, I think that at this point, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's going to be Jokic and Giannis at the top at this point. Um, I, I really don't see anyone else that you can mention that's up there that you can reasonably say has a chance. So this really just becomes a discussion of, do you reward the guy who is probably having statistically the better individual season or the guy who's having more success? So it's a really interesting storyline. These two guys are both previous MVP winners. So you can't really um, look at voter fatigue and say, oh, we, well, voters tend to vote for the guy that hasn't won as something that can be a deciding factor. They're both guys that have won the MVP in the past. They're both very deserving. They're both generally high character guys for the most part, unless you are a Heat fan and you consider Nikola Jokic his cheap shot of Markeith Morris, um, a serious offense. But if you're looking at just what the MVP award means, I think it's going to come down to what the MVP is to you. Does that mean the best player on the best team or the best individual player? In my opinion, if I'm being honest with myself, I would give the MVP to Nikola Jokic this season, just because I think that as an individual player, he is just doing more than Giannis is. Not that Giannis isn't doing amazing things, but Nikola Jokic is first in the league in efficiency. He has a PER of 33.65, which is incredibly high. He's getting 7.6 assists per game, which is ninth. He's getting 13.8 rebounds per game, which is second. And he's getting 26.1 points per game, which is seventh. He's literally top 10 in pretty much all the most important metrics and he's doing it with his team completely depleted. His team basically has their two best supporting players out for the entire year, essentially, um, up to this point with Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray all missing significant time with big injuries. So, and Jokic has basically had to do it all on his own. I know that his team at 24 and 21, their record isn't anything that's blowing anybody away. But if you just look at what he's having to do to put this team in that position at all, 
I think that you have to kind of give him the award. He's doing it with a lot less. Um, when Giannis started out the year before he got Middleton back and before he got Drew Holiday back, his team was struggling too. And his team was much worse off than the Nuggets are, if, I, if I'm being honest. So I think that Giannis is doing great right now. He obviously is getting more points per game. He's getting 28.6 points per game. And he's been extremely efficient, 53% from the field. But I think that Jokic probably just has a little bit more of an overall impact for his team. So I'm going with Jokic. So I think it's going to come down to, and it obviously always comes down to health, but you always, we, we did this analysis last season in the last 10 years, the person who's won the MVP race has been usually number one, but at least in the top three of PER. And if you look at the top three right now, it's Jokic, Embiid, and Giannis. And I think, like we talk about at the start of the season, it comes down to this statistic, the PER, the overall narrative of the player, and the overall standing of the team. And so... I think given the press that this team has gotten and given the way that this guy has handled it and given his performance as of late, I think Joel Embiid has the best shot of winning MVP based off of his recent performance. He's played five fewer games than Jokic and four fewer than Giannis, so he needs to not miss a lot more games to continue with the season. But he's got Ben Simmons, who has been in a conflict with the 76ers from pretty much the end of last season. Nikola Jokic had obviously the cheap shot on Markeith and just has random spats with people. So I think that it's going to be a negative against him, although obviously his performance is stellar. And Giannis, there might be some voter fatigue given he won it two of the last three years. So I think that Joel has the best shot if he continues this performance gets the 76ers to a higher seed and continues to do so while there is this internal strife going on with the team and Ben Simmons. Yeah, you're right. I guess I didn't really consider Embiid. Um, their season started out in such a way that you wouldn't have expected it, but he's been putting on such a dominant display in the last couple of weeks that he actually has elevated himself to that position and is quietly now the third leading scorer in the league with the second highest PR at 31.60. He's actually been pretty efficient from three-point range. He's shooting 39% from three right now, which is incredible. And um, overall, I think maybe that's probably brought his field goal percentage down a bit. He's shooting 49.8 overall. So out of the three guys that we've been discussing, he's the only one shooting below 50%. But I think that the coolest thing about this too is that the three guys that we're discussing are all big men. For the longest time, there had been a conversation about how the most important player or the guy who would make the biggest impact on the team was going to be a small forward. The conversation was always dominated by guys like LeBron James, Durant, even though he's kind of a big guy, really Kawhi Leonard, you know, all these types of guys, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, these have always been the mold. And then there was that revolution where we started seeing the point guards, the guards kind of taking over the Stephen Curry's of the world. And it kind of seemed like the big man was being marginalized and was going to see less of an emphasis in the offense and overall in basketball. It seemed like the big man was becoming more of an afterthought. And here we are um, a couple of years later, top three guys in the league in terms of overall impact are all big men. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely a new age and it there's always an ebb and flow. And when it went to a small ball, it was a huge focus on smaller guys because it was run and gun three and D. And now you've gotten to the point where big men are starting to open up the floor and shoot threes. So now you have people who can score more effectively at three levels than the smaller guys. And it, and also are taking on that dribbling passing ability and good uh, floor vision as a whole, as well as being able to move quickly laterally and defend all the positions. So if big men's going to win, if they can do all the things that smaller guys do and also have the size and weight to go along with it. So you see that with just non-prototypical point guards in LaMelo Ball and Luka Doncic, who are both above 6'8". And then obviously with guys like Jason Tatum, who are 6'10", playing the two. And then these big guys that we're talking about now who are 6'10 and above and are dribbling, passing, and shooting like guys who historically have been 6'4", 6'3", or under. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a new age with a new skill set of player. So it'll be interesting to see how the league continues to evolve. Well, on to our last segment, what's the verdict? You will ask me a series of questions where I will uh, give a guilty or innocent verdict based off of the person or situation. Let's do it. All right. So first one up, Alex Caruso talked about a little earlier. We'll miss six to eight weeks with a fractured wrist that he suffered on a Grayson Allen flagrant foul. Grayson Allen was later captured kind of smiling to himself on the bench after it happened. And Caruso and the Bulls coach came out after and said that they thought it was BS. Um, Grayson Allen, as we know, has a bit of a, a history in the past. Do you think that Grayson Allen was guilty of purposely injuring Caruso and was the league guilty of not issuing a large enough punishment? He only got one game for the flagrant. Yeah, I watched the replay a couple of times and I have to say, like looking at Grayson Allen's college things that he did and the kicking or the tripping this really appeared to be like not intentional. I don't, the, the first, like when he went up for the block, if he wouldn't have grabbed him with his left hand, Caruso still would have spun out and the result probably would have been exactly the same. And so I didn't really see anything with his left hand that changed Caruso's flight trajectory to get him into a position where he was going to have that hard fall. And I just think it was two guys who jumped up in the air, collided in the air, and then an unfortunate thing transpired afterwards. I don't know if Grayson smiling on the bench was because of him laughing about injuring Caruso. He could have just been on the bench talking to another player and then somebody said something and he was smiling and it just, the camera caught him at that time and it was conveniently five minutes after that whole thing had happened. So I I don't think he was that guilty for what happened. I don't think the league is guilty for giving too small of a, a suspension because I just didn't think that it was that bad of a foul. I've seen way worse and way more intentional things like Caruso's injury might be worse than Markeith Morris's, but I don't think that Grayson Allen went up in the air saying, I'm going to injure this guy and take him out versus Jokic actually meant to take out Markeith Morris and did so successfully. So I think 
it one game was sufficient. And I don't think I also saw Grayson Allen hasn't been ejected from a game in the NBA. And I think his only flagrant foul came in a summer league game. So he's not really been the same person that you saw at Duke and has cleaned up his act since getting into the NBA. So I just, I, I think people are looking way too much into the past and then trying to draw something that's not really there. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Um, if we were just looking at the play objectively, if it was just two other random guys and we saw that foul, obviously it's a flagrant. It's definitely an excessive foul. You shouldn't do it because it's, it's basically a non-basketball foul. Like on the play, you are trying to stop the guy from scoring, but you're supposed to be trying to make a play on the ball. You're not supposed to be trying to just straight up stop the guy from scoring by hitting at his body. So that definitely makes it a flagrant foul, and it makes it something that I think has no place in the game, no matter what the context is. But I also think that these kinds of fouls, like you said, they do happen pretty frequently. We see it happen all the time. And I think that the punishment that was issued probably would have been in line with what we would have seen for a different set of two players doing the same exact thing. I think that potentially maybe we would have seen a flagrant foul if it was that exact same play with two other guys not named Grace Allen. The league probably doesn't issue a punishment at all, actually. It's probably more so the fact that there was the, the two things going together. There's the spotty history. There's the unfortunate timing of him grinning after the camera catches him. But again, I don't think that when you look at the foul itself, you can say that it was inherently more severe or dangerous than what we typically see on a game to game basis. And I think the other thing, too, that they might have looked at and why both Caruso and Billy Donovan were upset after the game and talking about it was Grayson didn't go check on Caruso afterwards. And I think had he done that to be like, hey, are you good? I think there probably wouldn't have been any bad press from any of the Bulls and the league maybe wouldn't have suspended him. But I think because he didn't go check in on him and didn't like do that sportsmanlike bit, then that's why the league went uh, one step further than maybe they would have otherwise. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think that Grayson Allen probably would have helped himself a lot by going ahead and checking on him. I think that that's basic thing that you should do when you hurt somebody. So, you know, maybe they have a little bit of bad blood. Maybe they don't really like each other all that much. But I guess that's the price you pay for not following, you know, the unwritten rules of the sport. But moving on to our next case, Kyrie Irving gets fined $25,000 for directing obscene language at a fan um, at a game recently against the Cavaliers. Fans were taunting him, yelling, hey, do you need LeBron, Kyrie? Heckling him in general, to which Kyrie responds, got y'all a championship. And you MFers are still ungrateful. Was Kyrie guilty of trying to take way too much credit? And was he guilty of losing his cool? I mean, it's Kyrie. So you knew that he was. If you heckle Kyrie, you know that this is likely going to happen. I mean, he doesn't is not shy at coming back at people or clapping back at people. And I don't think he was guilty of taking too much credit. Who made the shot in game seven? Kyrie did. And so I think that obviously it's a team sport. And obviously Kyrie was a huge part of that championship. But he's guilty of losing his cool. Yes. But this is to be expected. The fans were just as guilty in what they were doing and heckling him. 
And I don't, I think he's innocent in terms of taking too much credit. For me, I got to say that I don't see anything wrong with Kyrie responding to the fan. Just like I don't see a big issue with fans heckling the players, I don't see a big issue with players responding in kind. I think that it's ridiculous for a player to try to get a fan kicked out for heckling or something like that. But I didn't think that what Kyrie said was outside the spectrum of what is, you know, just normal adult language. So I I don't think that it was really anything that he should have been fined for, especially when the fans were the ones that were initiating that. Although I do think that he's probably taking a little bit too much credit on saying that he got them the championship at the end of the day, it was LeBron who got the finals MVP. So yes, he did hit, you know, the biggest shot of the series, but a series is just that it's a series. It's not one game or one moment. It's all of them combined summatively. So I don't know. I think Ray Allen won the heat, the, championship when he drained that shot in game six so see i think it's one thing to say that the heat wouldn't have won it without him i think that's different than saying that he won them the championship i think that's two different things one is to say that he was essential to the process the other one is to say that he was the the majority of the process so i don't think that ray allen won the heat the championship remember they did have to go and play another game after that And overall, Ray Allen didn't have the biggest uh, single impact in any one game. Like, he just had the biggest moment and the timeliest shot. So I think that without him, of course, they could not have won it. But conversely, you could say the same thing about the other guys. They probably couldn't have won it without Wade. They probably couldn't have won it without Bosh. You know, Bosh had to get that offensive rebound. You could say that about anyone. So I think that you look at – when you look at a series and you say, I won them the championship or all this – Like you can't just boil that down to one singular moment or event because a a series is a series. You have to take into account the whole of the moment. Every play is just as important as the next. So I think when you look at it from that perspective, Kyrie can't say that he won them the championship. So probably guilty on taking a little bit too much credit, but totally within his right to respond to the fan. But on to the next one, 76ers, have gotten pretty good trade packages for Ben Simmons in recent days. 76ers received an offer around Jeremy Grant and Tyrese Halliburton declining both trades. They get from the Kings an offer that would have brought Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, Harrison Barnes, and two first-round picks in exchange for Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and Matisse Teibel. The 76ers decline. They say that um, Matisse Teibel is untouchable and that they're asking for too much for Simmons and that they're also not getting enough back. So they decline that one. Um, The other trade regarding Jeremy Grant with Sadiq Bey in exchange for Ben Simmons also declined on behalf of not getting enough return, also including a first-round pick. Do you think that the 76ers are guilty of expecting too much? Um, I think the Detroit trade didn't make sense for them. I think the Kings trade, they're exactly right in terms of not wanting to give up Matisse Thibel. So I think if, if that's the starting framework and they're working towards that to the February 10th deadline, 
I think that the Kings sound like the most likely place because to me, that's, that sounds like a reasonable starting point. They want to offload Tobias Harris's contract. They want to get some expiring contracts back in the deal, some first round picks, and they want to be able to um, get a player that they can insert immediately and have success. And so I think Harrison Bard fills the Tobias Harris while also being on an expiring deal here shortly. I think that Halliburton is arguably one of the top three rookies from last year's class. So they get a stud young talent back. And I think that they are able to offload their Tobias and and Ben Simmons dilemma and get that out of the way. So I think that as we get closer to the deadline, if other teams know that that's the framework and that's where they need to navigate towards, then I think a Ben Simmons deal is definitely going to happen. I think they are expecting a little bit too much at the moment, but this is what you're dealing with when you have a couple of weeks still until the actual deadline. So things will continue to heat up, and I think expectations will be lowered on both the buy and sell side of this deal. But I think that given there appears to be a couple frameworks coming into play, a deal is going to get done. Yeah, I personally think that there were both great offers for the 76ers. And both for different reasons. I mean, one of them, if you as the 76ers really think that Matisse Teibel is like an untradeable asset and you need to have him, and you don't want to make this messy with involving other pieces and you just want Ben Simmons out straight up, then I think that the the, uh, Pistons trade was really good. You basically only have to give up Ben Simmons. You get back Jeremy Grant, Sadiq Bey, and Kelly Olenek and a first round pick. I think that that's really great for them. You basically get elite spacing around Joel Embiid. Imagine inserting Jeremy Grant into the lineup with Tobias Harris. You'd be having Tobias Harris at 6'10", who is a floor spacing forward with Jeremy Grant, another guy at 6'7", 6'8", who has great floor spacing potential as well and really good interior defense as well, switchability. You're putting those guys together. You got Sadiq Bey, a promising young player who can space it from the outside. You get all those guys together, you get depth, you get spacing, you get switchability and versatility, and all pieces that would work alongside the 76ers. I think that would have been really nice for them, and they turned that down. And then on the other hand, with the trade around Halliburton, again, like you said, one of the best young players, you want a guy that is going to be a long-term building block with Joel Embiid. Tyrus Halliburton is a guy that probably is an ideal fit, a point guard with plus size, He has a pass-first type mentality. He's solid from the outside. He would seem to be a perfect point guard fit for a guy like Joel Embiid, and they turn it down because they feel like they can get more. I think that definitely they're going to have to lower their expectations if they're going to get anything to go. Yeah, well, we'll see. I think that the entire organization, and honestly, as a basketball fan, I kind of just want this to be over. I'm tired of talking about Ben Simmons week in and week out. It's time for him to actually go on a team and produce more than just storylines. But that's it for the show. Like us, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on all of your social media channels. With that, I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Quarters adjourned. Call. Cause of opinion